Well, it's one week until Christmas. Is everybody ready? I'm looking at the husbands out there in particular. <laughs> wives I know have been purchased, or, or gifts have been purchased for your wives, I'm sure. And I'm sure you know every single gift uh, that's coming to your children uh, on Christmas morning. Or maybe it'll be just as much a surprise to you as it will be to your kids, as perhaps in my own house. But one week until Christmas Day, how are you, how are you feeling? Is it feeling good? Does it feel Christmassy? Are you feeling like you feel like you should? That you're kind of told that you're supposed to be? You know, we get to listen to Christmas music on the radio. There's Christmas movies on every uh, channel that you find. And you, you've, you kind of got, you feel like you're supposed to be in this good, happy, chipper Christmas mood. And some of us might be feeling that way. Some of us might be feeling like, you know what, I'm in a good spot. You know, Christmas shopping is done. Uh, I've got a week of holidays coming up and just, you know, just putting it into cruise control ready to enjoy Christmas. But probably for a lot of us uh, here this morning, we might not be in that spot. You know, this year has been a lot more difficult financially for many of us. You know, you might, there might be some families out there feeling like, I, I don't know if I can provide the same Christmas for my family that I have in years past. And if I do, I'm, I don't have as much to pay for it now, I'm gonna be paying for it later and I'm gonna have to put more of it on credit than I ever had to. Or perhaps, uh, like our family, you're looking at this Christmas and thinking, you know what, it's, it's another Christmas without a loved one. And maybe some of you faced that very recently, even in, in this past year. This may be your first Christmas without someone very close to you, very dear to you. You know, it's hard to believe for us this will be our third Christmas without Jude. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's coming to Christmas, it, it's hard. A lot of us might be feeling that way. And so the Bible speaks to us in our, in our hardships and in our, our times of sorrow, whether we're coming into this Christmas one week away from today, feeling like we're in a good spot or a bad spot, the Bible speaks to us. You know, we, we just had a passage read for us, and um, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage this morning. You probably know it. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We're going to see that the Bible does offer hope to those who are going through a difficult time as we enter Christmas. Because we'll see that the people of God were going through a hard time when they received the passage that we read. We're not just looking at verses 6 and 7, the, the familiar verses. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 as well. And we're going to see that God's people found themselves in a difficult time. They were looking for hope and they were given a promise of future hope. And my prayer for us this morning is that we will see that the Messiah that was promised to them, to God's people so many years ago, can be the same hope that we can look to today, whatever situation we find ourselves in. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, before we go into chapter 9, we need to look at the historical context for what's happening so that you know what's going on. Chapter 8 is not a good moment for God's people. The northern kingdom of, of Israel is very close to being taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And even this, the southern kingdom of Judah, that had a bit of separation from the Assyrians uh, geographically, they knew that there was an imminent threat. So they, were living, they weren't living 
in peace at this time. Look at uh, verse 18 of chapter 8. It says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. So how do they feel? How does Isaiah feel at this time that God is treating them? It feels like God's hiding his face from them. And then in verse 22, then they, God's people, will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So when the people of God, when they look out upon the earth, what are they seeing? Distress, darkness, gloom. This is the feeling of God's people as we're entering into Isaiah chapter 9, that God's hiding his face from them somehow, that they're feeling darkness and gloom. So it's a low point for the people of God. But then, as we enter verse 1 of chapter 9, God is not going to leave his people there. This is the good news. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. If you have the NIV, it says, nevertheless, so there's a change. There will be no gloom for those who are in distress. It begins by telling us the way things, we're experiencing them right now, they're not going to be like this forever. There's hope on the horizon. Verse 1 continues, In the former time he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's interesting, Isaiah's speaking here as if this was happening a long time ago, but this is happening at the time of his writing. He's speaking prophetically as, he, as if he's looking back at stuff that's happening right now. He says, In the past... God humbled Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, what does this mean? What, who are, what is Zebulun and Naphtali? Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the tribes of Israel, and they were located in the, in the very north of the land we know as Israel today. They were the first two kingdoms to fall when Assyria came in and took them over in 733 BC. So these two kingdoms are taken over, and this is part of God's judgment on them. But even though they're experiencing God's judgment, it also says that there's going to be hope for them. They're, he's going to honor them in the future. Look at the second half of verse 1 and into verse 2. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has shone light. So how is this good news specifically for Zebulun and Naphtali, the, the, the group that's being addressed? We understand that they're going to receive a blessing. But, but the way they're going to receive blessing is because the, a light is coming. You might not recognize this, but um, Zebulun and Naphtali were known that, as Galilee during the time of Jesus. And so the blessing that's coming to them, it's right now as they're experiencing darkness and gloom, as they're being overtaken by the Assyrians, they're known as Naphtali and Zebulun. But the promise is coming that they're going to be called Galilee, and that is where Jesus is going to come with his ministry. The hope comes in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, flip over actually to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to be able to see this in your own Bible to see how the promises of God connect here. At the end of Matthew chapter 3, you'll know that that was the baptism of Jesus. And then at the beginning of Matthew 4, Jesus is tested by Satan in the wilderness. 
And then we see, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Cape Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Matthew sees that the blessing that's to come is the, is the earthly ministry of Jesus. The ones that had been first taken away into captivity, they are going to be the first ones to experience the ministry of Jesus. They experienced the darkness of captivity. But there's a promise coming, and Matthew identifies that it was fulfilled when Jesus came. On them, a light was, was dawn. Have you ever woken up early before the, the sun rises? and it's really dark out, and maybe you go somewhere where you can see a, a large horizon, and you don't see the sun first, you see the light of the sun shining above the horizon first, just very lightly. But then slowly as the sun rises, the power of the light comes. And slowly, it's not just the light of the sun you see, but you actually start to see the sun, and it fills everything with light. The people of, of God were experiencing this darkness, but they were promised that look to the future, look to the hope, look to the horizon, a light is coming. For a people that were living in darkness, a light is coming. As sure as the sun rises each morning, a light is going to come for you. These prophetic words of Isaiah are, for, are words of hope for people dwelling in darkness. When all you can see is your circumstances, God is calling you to lift your eyes up to see the hope that is coming. God has plans to bless you. And in order to see the effect of this promised hope, now let's go on to verses three to five. The people rejoice in the triumph of God. Verse three says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as, they, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. How many references do you see in this one verse to joy and gladness? This is something that you can underline in your Bible so you just see that constantly. There's at least four references to joy or gladness or rejoicing in this one verse alone. When people see the light of God that's promised, it fo what follows is joy, whatever circumstance they find themselves in. It says here that God's people not just rejoice, but they rejoice before him. It's in God's presence that we experience this joy. It doesn't just come digging ourselves deeper into what culture calls joy. It's a joy that comes when we're experiencing the presence of the Lord. It's so similar to what David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever been in just like a low spot emotionally? And then a time with the Lord renews your spirit and renews your joy. Perhaps you're not in the best mood on a Sunday morning. You're just thinking about all these different worries you have. And then after a time of worship with God and his people and singing and prayer and listening to the word, it just changes you. 
and you can walk away joyful even though you came in the morning not in a place of joy. Joy in the midst of hardship comes from the presence of God. And it's not just partial joy, it says it's fullness of joy in God's presence. Verse 3, it says, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. You know, that doesn't mean too much for us, except for maybe the, the few farmers that we, maybe we do have in the church. But for the people of God, most of them were farmers. They, they, were, they were planting their own food. The best time of the year came, the most joy came when the harvest came, when all their hard work had paid off. Or he puts it another way, they rejoice as when they divide the spoil. For those who fought in battle, there was no greater joy than when the war was won. They go and divide the spoil that was taken from their enemies. So there's a fullness of joy. Isaiah goes on in verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden, for the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's at least three different things that God breaks that's in the hand of the oppressor. Mentions the yoke, mentions the staff or the bar, depending on your translation, and the rod of the enemies. These are instruments that were being used by the oppressing rulers that God has broken for them. All these things God has freed them from. It reminds the people of God as when he brought them out from Egypt, when he brought them out from the burden that they had there. And the victory, he also talks about in the days of Midian. Well, what, what battle is, is famous in the Bible where they defeated the Midianites? Well, it was in the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7, when the Israelites, they were led by Gideon and they defeated the Midianites in a miraculous way. You'll remember God whittled down their army down to 300 men, 300 soldiers, and caused the army of Midian to turn on one another. As a result, the yoke and the rod on their shoulders was removed from them. So there's much joy from what God brings, not only in what he gives them, but from the oppression that he takes away from them. The result is that all of those things that were oppressing God's people will be burned in the fire. And so there's much joy for God's people as they think about this light that is coming. We see at the end of chapter 8, they're not in a good spot, but God has promised good for his people. He promises them that no matter what they're going through, a light is coming. He promises that he will be the one to provide the victory. It's not them that is providing the victory, it's God who's providing the victory for them. And that no matter what's going on, they can experience joy as long as they are in the presence of the Lord. But as we end verse 5, we're still not clear as to the means of the light. What is this light that is coming in the darkness? The hope, it's still unclear. Where is it coming from? And that's where we'll move to verses 6 and 7, the climax of this prophetic section of Scripture. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. How does God enact victory over his enemies? He sends a child, he gives a son. 
we see that the, the promise of light in the midst of darkness doesn't come from an idea, it comes from a person. Our Messiah is a child. Our Savior is a son. Today when I look out on society, I see people are captured by ideas. They're looking to ideas to give them freedom, to give them hope, to give them joy. Maybe political ideas. It's not a person they're looking to, because once the person abandons the idea, they abandon the person. They're looking to ideas. Economic ideas, philosophical ideas, and even religious ideas people are looking to. But none of these things in and of themselves as ideas are gonna save them. As Christians, we don't look to a concept or an idea, we look to a person to save us. The hope of the gospel, the true hope of Christmas is that a child was born and that a son was given. Verse six says that the government will be on his shoulders. This is such good news for us who feel that the weight of the world is currently resting on their shoulders. If there's a weight on you this morning, the good news is that the child that was sent to us, the government, the weight of the world is going to be on his shoulders. He is going to carry that for you and for us. Verse six goes on. It tells us more about this child. It says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. When he's called Wonderful Counselor, this tells us that, that he's qualified to rule. The word that's actually translated wonderful, it not only means good in the way that we understand it, but also it means that he's able to work wonders. He's able to do miraculous things. The same word that's used for wonderful there, in, in Psalm 77, verse 11, it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles or your wonders of long ago. We see over and over in the life and ministry of Jesus that he works miracles, he works wonders. But he's also a counselor. He is able to offer us wise guidance. Think of the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon of the Ma on the Mount. Is there any better offering to the world on how to live a good life and a life for their own flourishing and for the flourishing of society? than in the Sermon on the Mount? How much better of a world would we be living in if people were meeker and more humble and generous and pure and if they let their yes be yes and their no be no and to did, who did unto others as they wanted done unto themselves? Jesus, the child that was born at Christmas, he was given to us as our wonderful, miracle-working counselor but he's also our mighty God. He's not just a powerful ruler or king, but he's, he's God himself. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The Messiah promised, it's not just a messenger of God. The Messiah that has come for us is God. And he's a God who is mighty. This is what Isaiah is referring to in verses three to five when he's speaking of the victory that he brings and the joy that is brought in his presence. Our God is a warrior, our God is a champion. He does not lose. 
He is mighty God. And he's also called our everlasting father. Now this phrase has, has confused me for a long time. Has it confused anyone else here? Why is Jesus called our everlasting father? Is Jesus the father? It almost sounds like Isaiah is speaking against the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, we're taught that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So how is it that he is the everlasting Father? Well, we know that we don't have any problem with him being everlasting. God the Son, Jesus, he's everlasting, he's eternal. He had no beginning and he'll have no end. That's part of the deity of Jesus, that the word everlasting is ascribed to him. But why is he called Father? I think simply it just means he's relationally close to us. The Messiah that's to come for the people then and the Messiah that has come, he's not a, a distant God who exists far away, like the CEO of some company that you never hear from. Jesus is like a father to us. He is relationally close to us. He knows us intimately. He plays a fatherly role in his provision for us and his care for us. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, he heals a paralyzed man, and Jesus says to this man, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus is not that man's biological father, but he tells him this because he cares for him like a father cares for a son. So what this means is that Jesus is not God the Father, but it just means that he's caring and loving toward us like a good father is toward his children. He's our everlasting father. But he's also the prince of peace. Jesus reigns as prince. His rule and reign is one of peace. After Jesus was resurrected, he says to his disciples, peace be with you. And on the night before his crucifixion, he said this to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not, do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. And most of all in the gospel, Jesus gives us peace with God by his death on the cross. So the one promised to come as the light in the midst of darkness, the one that's born as a baby that we remember at Christmas time is our wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. He's our everlasting father and he's our prince of peace. And what does his rule and reign look like as Messiah? Look at verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what does it say about this reign of our God and our Savior? It is forever. It's not like the reign of other governments that rise and fall. Every other government, every other kingdom is for a season. But the rule and reign of our Messiah is forever. We don't have to wonder what the future is going to look like, who's going to be ruling over us because Jesus will always be on that throne. 
and it will be a reign of justice and a reign of righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so let me ask you the question. These are very familiar truths to us. I probably haven't told you anything new. I've probably reminded you of some things, but I haven't told you something new. But really, why does this matter? Does it really matter in our lives? Do these truths, do these descriptors of Jesus the Messiah, do they really make any difference? Or can we just go on to our Christmas lunch and just <laughs> say it was nice to hear those things? Do they really matter in real life? Well, let me tell you why these things matter to me. And I hope that you'll see that as they matter to me, because I'm a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, they can mean the same things to you. Two years, two years ago, when our 11-year-old son Jude died, we were shattered. We were decimated. It almost felt like life wasn't worth living anymore. This, this perfect life that you imagine, it just ends. And, but you, you still go on. But what you thought of life, it just ends. How do, you, how do you go on? How do you, what do you do? We were able to get through that tragedy and able to move forward because of that child that was born and the son that was given. We have been carried by Jesus all the way through. He is our wonderful counselor. To me, this means that he knows my deepest sorrows and pains. Who knows you like the counselor that you confide in? You'll perhaps tell things to a counselor that you won't tell to anyone else. Jesus is that counselor. He knows me deeply. I don't have to hide things from him. He has been my wonderful counselor. And he can be your wonderful counselor as well through anything you go through. He is also mighty God. This means that Jesus, in the midst of any tragedy, he is not a powerless bystander. He is God. He is sovereign. This, is a, this deep truth is an anchor to me. God could have changed those circumstances two years ago, but he didn't. And this is where, if he was only mighty God, but not also a wonderful counselor, that could cause spite in my heart against a mighty God who wasn't also a wonderful counselor. But I know that I have a wonderful counselor who seeks the eternal best for me and sought the, what was eternally best for Jude, even if I can't fully understand it. But my wonderful counselor and my mighty God, he understands that. He's also my everlasting father. Yes, he's, he's smart and wise like a counselor. And yes, he's a mighty God, but he also loves me deeply like a father loves a son. If he was just a counselor, perhaps he'd be too busy for me once I kind of moved through the, the deepest and darkest pain. But because he's my everlasting father, it means he is still walking with me to this very day, and he will still walk with me as I move forward. Jesus does not move on from me. 
And he does not move on from you wherever you are at. He will never stop caring for me. And he will never stop caring for you. He will always have time for me, like a father always has time for a son. If you are a parent, you know that you would do anything for your child. This is how God feels towards you, only infinitely more, in a way only that a God who is love could love his child. And finally, Jesus has also been my Prince of Peace. When I look back on that day that Jude was hit by a pickup truck, and I look back on the days in the hospital and prepping for his funeral and going through visitation and the funeral and then the burial, I look back and I just, I have no idea, humanly speaking, how I got through that. This isn't because of any strength in me, I'll tell you that much. This can be something that's only attributed to a God who is the Prince of Peace. The Bible talks about how God gives a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's true, and it comes through Jesus, that child given at Christmas. I experienced the Prince of Peace in my life, and that same Prince of Peace is your Prince of Peace for whatever you are going through right now. Jesus gives us peace in the midst of our darkest moments. So do these four characteristics that are very familiar to us about Jesus, that baby born in a manger, really make a difference in your life? You bet they do. They matter because they're real. They're not just words on a screen. They're not just words to be sung. They are real descriptors of a real God who really cares for you and loves you. They are descriptions of a wonderful counselor, of a mighty God, of an everlasting Father, and of a Prince of Peace. And what's more, his reign and rule will never end. There is no expiry date on the goodness and of the rule and love of Jesus. It is, it is already begun. That rule has already begun. We experience it right now only in partial ways. Jesus came the first time, we remember his first advent, born in a manger. He inaugurated that kingdom here on earth. And we see glimpses of his kingdom and his reign right now. But Jesus is coming again a second time. There will be a second advent that we look forward to. And at that time, he will bring his rule and reign on this earth in all of its fullness. Revelation 21 Verses 1 to 4, it speaks of what this will look like. Just listen to the beauty of this description. This is what is the future for those of us who are in Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every 
tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love that picture. I love this. The dwelling place of God is with us. Jesus came to be with us. Now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, but he will come again, and the dwelling place of God once more will be with man. At Christmas, we remember Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He came. He showed us who he was. He will come again. He will wipe away every tear that's in our eyes, and everything that is wrong and broken in this world will be made right. So let me close with this by just bringing this Jesus right before you and just ask, do you know Jesus in this way? Do you not just know things about Jesus, but do you know Jesus in this personal way? Do you know him personally as your wonderful counselor, as your mighty God, as your everlasting Father, and as your Prince of Peace. Some of us here, we know a lot about God, but do you know him? Do you experience him? See, the reason that Jesus came as a person and not just God sending an idea was so that we could know and experience him. If you're not sure, if you, don't, if you know him personally, I would love to chat with you about knowing him personally. I'd love to just set up some time. You could call into the church office or email me. Got plenty of time this week before Christmas. I'd just love to tell you more about knowing Jesus in this personal way. But for Christians, for those of you who are here and you, you do know Jesus personally, my, my encouragement to you this week is to just press more into him this week. Don't press into the holly jolly Christmas, into the secular ideas of Christmas that, that hope to give you joy, but then really you're just packing up that joy sometime afterwards, just like you pack up the Christmas tree. Press into the one who won't leave you at the end of the Christmas season. He can hold you through whatever you're going through, through the good times and the, and the bad. Live in the hope that he provides you as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Priests. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we do thank you that this isn't just truths to be known, but that uh, you are a person to be experienced. We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you are the promised Messiah, that you were the light that is shone in the darkness. And that, that we can know you in a personal way, not just as a concept, but like the passage says, as an everlasting father, as one who is with us, who knows us, who cares for us. So I just pray for each one here this morning, listening, God, that you would just show them your presence, show them your love, show them your care for them. And Lord, open up their hearts. May they be open to you this Christmas season. And God, we just thank you and praise you that it's not based on anything that we have done, 
that it's not because, you know, we've, we've cleaned ourselves up that we can come to you, but Lord, you come to us even in our mess and give us that hope, that light in the darkness. So continue to encourage us with these truths today. In Jesus' name, amen. And God, I just pray for each one of these uh, individuals, each one of these families, God. Help them get settled here at West Highland. May they have uh, good places to have community. May they have places to serve, to use their spiritual gifts. And God, may they just be a blessing to the church. And may the church also be a blessing to them, that the church would walk with them through good times and through difficult times. And Lord, that we, we can be that, that picture that we see of the early church in, in Acts 2 that just came together, loved one another, and that as the people from outside saw that love, they wanted in, they wanted some community like that. Lord, may we, may, may we as a church be like that today. So we ask, ask your blessing on each one of them today as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.